0: Good morning, everybody. We are continuing with the Diamond Sutra book study. We, last time we started chapter 21, Uh, we didn't get that far, so we will continue where we left off. So just a recap on where we're at. The Diamond Sutra, as you know, gradually and systematically works on disintegrating all of our attachments by illuminating the fallacy of a hand that can actually grasp anything. So Instead of directing our efforts to some process of arriving at liberation by letting go of attachments and dissolving hindrances, the sutra suggests that we examine the validity of the one who is supposedly attached or hindered. If the fixed notion of a person is deemed as no more than a concept, then naturally the notions of attachments and hindrances are also no more than created formations weaved in our mind. But if what we think we are and what we believe we are trapped by or attached to are no more than concepts, then what about the Buddha Dharma did the Buddha teach anything at all what is Dharma transmission and if the Buddha didn't teach anything how can a teaching that cannot be taught be conveyed to people these are the questions chapter 21 is dealing with so I'm gonna go back to the sutra and read again that chapter before we keep going so chapter 21 the buddha said Subhuti what do you think does it occur to the Tathagata I teach a dharma Subhuti replied no indeed bhagavan it does not occur to the Tathagata I teach a dharma The buddha said Subhuti if someone should claim that Tathagata teaches a dharma such a claim would be untrue Such a view of me Subhuti would be a misconception And how so? In the teaching of the Dharma, Subhuti, in the teaching of a Dharma, there is no such thing, there is no such Dharma to be found as the teaching of a Dharma. Upon hearing this, the Venerable Subhuti asked the Buddha, Bhagavan, will there be any beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma ending age, who hear a dharma such as this and believe it. The Buddha said, neither beings, Subhuti, nor no beings. And how so? Beings, Subhuti, beings are all spoken of by the Tathagata as no beings. Thus, they are called beings. So, again, repetition of the same language and often the same exact things are being repeated. And uh, this, is, this has been equated to a deep tissue massage that you have to go through again and again and again until something starts to dissolve, and things, until something starts to move. So this is from uh, Bill Porter. A number of commentators compare the Dharma taught by the Buddha to a mirror which reflects without any intention to do so. Maybe that's important to to, uh, repeat. It's equated to a mirror which reflects without, again, without any intention to do so, and without any attachment to what is reflected. This, they say, is how the Buddha teaches without teaching. Or we can say teaching through being not for the purpose of teaching but for the purpose of expressing. Seng Chao said to teach a Dharma means to transmit something and yet we are told there is no Dharma taught. It isn't that the Buddha keep, keeps silent and doesn't speak only that when he speaks nothing remains. So there are no traces to his teaching thus What he teaches spreads throughout the world without transgressing the truth. To this, Ling Yun adds, the fact that nothing remains means that he is not attached to appearances, that his mind dwells nowhere. And again, dwelling nowhere raises the body-mind. Connecting connecting this with the previous chapter, Shan Yue says, If there is a body, then there is a teaching. If there is no body, how can there be a teaching? Bill Porter says, in the previous chapter, the Buddha examines Subhuti's understanding of the nature of a Buddha's reward body, the Nirmanakaya. Mm -hmm. Here, the Buddha instructs him on the nature of his apparition body, as well as the nature of the teaching taught by the apparition body. In chapter 7, Subhuti says, Bhagavan, as I understand the meaning of what the Buddha says, the Tathagata did not realize any such Dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Nor does the Tathagata teach any such Dharma. And why not? The Dharma realized and taught by the Tathagata is incomprehensible and inexpressible. It is neither a Dharma nor no Dharma. And in chapter 8 the Buddha says from this teaching from this teaching is born the unexcelled perfect enlightenment of Tathagatas arhans and fully enlightened ones and from this are born buddhas and bhagavans and how so buddha dharmas Subhuti. buddha dharmas are spoken of by the tathagata as no buddha dharmas thus they are called buddha so is there any teaching at all? And Dipotra says it turns out the Buddha does not teach dharma but buddha's buddha dharma which is a raft and not ultimately real which the Buddha does not want us to cling to but to use in reaching the far shore. The only dharma that is real is the buddha's dharma the buddha's dharma body. The Dharmakaya the body of reality concerning which the Buddha cannot teach or speak. As he says in chapter 19, he only speaks of what does not exist. And Vasubandhu says, Again, a doubt arises if we cannot see the Tathagata's body or its attributes. How does the Tathagata teach dharmas? Huineng. When ordinary people teach a dharma, they think there is something learned. Thus the Buddha tells Subhuti: when the Tathagata teaches a dharma, he does not think anything is learned. Ordinary people teach as if we can understand. Whether he speaks or is silent, the Tathagata is truthful. The words he speaks are like echoes of an echo and used without Thought, Unlike those of ordinary people whose thoughts come and go when they teach. If you say that the Tathagata's thoughts come and go when he teaches a Dharma, you malign the Buddha. The Vimalakirti Sutra says, Those who truly teach a Dharma teach nothing and explain nothing. And those who hear a Dharma hear nothing and understand nothing. They know that all dharmas are completely empty and that all names and words are provisional and based entirely on emptiness. All words, teachings, and dharmas are without form or conditions and lead deluded people to their own nature and to cultivate and realize supreme enlightenment. Tiknatan says. When we can see the non rose elements when looking at the rose, it is safe for us to use the word rose. When we look at A and see that A is not A, we know that A is truly A. When A is no longer, then A is no longer a dangerous obstacle for us. So I want to stop there and, and open it up and. I'm curious to see where are we at with this what does it mean for us what is it that we are learning how is it possible to study what cannot be studied so where are we at with this yeah mukan good morning
1: good morning um i think I, yeah obviously I'd have to go back and confirm this, but this particular chapter seems to be the most times that the Buddha says Sabuti, where he keeps interjecting it over and over and over again, almost to the point of really disrupting the flow of the sentence. But I think it's continuous with a lot of the themes and a lot of the discussions so far in the Diamond Sutra, where the Buddha, uh, consistently engages in gentle reminders uh, to Sabuti of what he should be paying attention to and, well, and in turn what we should be paying attention to, but I I find it interesting that this chapter in particular repeats his name Mm -hmm. several times, (laughs) specifically in the last statement. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it just seems to be in line with what you said about the deep tissue massage. Uh, also yeah i just i don't know what's there with that but i I think that there's something interesting about it showing up in this particular discussion about the dharma Uh, that might be worth looking at
0: you know also when we can see that subuti is not subuti it is safe for us to call him subuti as many times as you want right and 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 the point in that actually is a very important point right to see that what what we think is is not then we can talk then we can say whatever we want then the provisional works as provisional right it makes sense so it makes sense to say it right so the question is is he saying it many times is he saying it more than once i don't know (laughs) So, so we say repetition, right? Mm -hmm. What is repetition?
1: Well, I, you know, I guess what I was gonna say kind of gets exploded, but I think when we talk, I remember you and I speaking once about counting our breaths when we meditate. Mm -hmm. We go one, two, three, but it's really just one, Mm -hmm. one, one, over and over, so I guess it begs the question, what is repetition?
0: (laughs) Well, if there's nothing there the first time you say, there's nothing there when you say it a thousand times.
1: Yeah, and there's no separation between the movements
0: then as well. Right. So, so nothing accumulates.
1: Yeah. And there's no delineation or, or separation mm-hmm. as, as distinct things. either.
0: Right, right. right. Yeah. Thank you. okay who's next okay good morning Razan. you know i always love to hear from you
2: <laughs> um, i was struck by the um Similarities to Taoism and Lao Tzu, and um, one of the questions with the Tao Te Ching is why is he talking at all? Uh, and that it, it seems it's a gift that he gives the, the Tao Te Jing to the uh, person at the gate to the city, I guess, as he's leaving the city.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that um, to see all of this as provisional, I guess provisional was, The word that hit me the most during this reading Mm -hmm. um it's all instrumental it's all provisional it's all um relative to context and to upaya and um that um that doesn't belittle it Mm -hmm. because it's crucial that we are provisional Mm -hmm. um but that it also puts us in this um um as you were just saying in the what you were reading that it removes us from attachment because there's um nothing to attach to because it's all just whatever is fitting the situation at the moment and after the moment is gone um, mm-hmm. um so like the repetition of sabuti it's um a different sabuti every moment because it's Not the Sabudi that was here the last time we were talking about Sabudi. So the the instrumental, um, provisional, those dimensions of this were really um, prominent for me.
0: Right. Yeah. Because here we are studying. uh, We are holding a book study to study that which which cannot be studied. Right. And does and does not need to be studied essentially yet we are holding a book study. So, and both are true. It, it cannot be studied, yet we need to study it. So we can understand what, what is the real meaning of it does not need to be studied.
2: Right, and it's like critically important and totally irrelevant at the same time.
0: Thank you. Yes and meaningless. <laughs> so so how does it feel uh, to, to be on a path that requires so much uh, uh, concentration, devotion, uh, yes, to, to be on that path and and to hear that uh, we are not studying anything? How does that feel? Is it encouraging or discouraging? Yeah. guy, okay, Good morning.
4: Um, good morning, y'all. Um, it's exciting. Exciting because, um, the intense curiosity won't be quenched at any point, really, that you could just keep going and going. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if it if there was something to be known and fully understood and learned and attained, and then you could just be like done with it and move on, then then it would just be like a hoop to jump through like, okay, I did that one, Mm -hmm. you know, next, and then like, then what would you have to look forward to, or not even to look forward to, but just, I don't know, it's just exciting that it's endless. This is a lesson I also learned from T, where when you meet a tea person, you think that like, oh, there might be a finite amount of information you can learn about tea, and then like, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but you realize that tea is such a massive, endless body of things to learn about. So that's just a tea person using that um, path. But uh yeah, it's really exciting.
5: Um,
4: and as far as there's nothing to be taught, um. I understand that in a school setting, in a, in a traditional classroom setting, um, people have the idea that there's information, it's being conveyed, someone's learning, they're taking that and now they have it and they didn't have it before. Um, but I've often given my professors the feedback of what if the students already possess all of the knowledge and you're just helping them see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as far as studying that which cannot be studied, I feel that by doing this book study, what we're simply doing is turning towards and giving attention to and creating space for the experience, which is the actual lesson, is the experience, the direct experience of, but that if we distract ourselves with other things, then uh, you can't uh, consciously have that direct experience, mm-hmm. which is the actual
0: teaching. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, so to trust that knowing it by birth is best and knowing it by learning is next. So to know something, to trust that we, we know it by birth. To trust that that's not in question or to trust that we are not in question. And, and it does take studying to, to, and uh, uh, strong resolve and discipline to, to break through the doubt that we are not enough, right? The, the, the doubt about our sufficiency.
4: To be a bodybuilder, you have to go to the gym. You have the muscles but are you exercising them? Are they getting strong? Are they engaging? Um,
0: Yeah, you gotta engage, yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So, anyone else? Yes, Jeremy, good morning.
6: I'm I'm struck by this idea of effort, especially when it relates to struggle um, and maybe struggle that we create in and of ourselves We were talking about this idea of a mirror Mm -hmm. and that the mirror reflects without any intent of needing to reflect Mm -hmm. and yet (laughs) i find that oftentimes we get into a point where we're like what if i reflect this way or whatever i um i'm kind of brought back to this idea of that of the moon just being this light but it's not really a light it's reflecting a light and then in essence it still exists and then that little dew drop or the the pond or whatever, captures it without having to need to. So for me, back to your question of how does it feel, mm-hmm. it's a reminder of the effortlessness of experiencing nothing and being nothing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's comforting too to be in that moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, comforting, uh, also relief. Right? There is, there is a great sense of relief to recognize or at least to hear that what we're studying is inherent and does not need to be studied, right? So the question is, how do we deal with getting in the way or getting in our own way? And that's where the practice is at, actually, right? So you know to recognize again and again that we're not inventing anything, we are just learning to not get in the way, right? So there's no accumulation needed. There is a very important, uh, we have to recognize again and again how we, or that we get in the way, and then work with the ways we get in the way. And that's very personal, that's very individual. We all get in the way in very uh, specific way, in our own unique way, which is obviously karmic. It's not just we invented this all of a sudden. It is karmic, it is ancient. But we all have our ways of interfering, in a way, with what is. So, yeah. So, I want to move on to the the last part of of this sutra and uh, Bill Porter's commentary before we move on to the next chapter. Uh, Bill Porter says, This sutra has advanced since chapter 6, when Subhuti asked the same question and the Buddha said that that there would indeed be such beings who would actually practice, right? And that is the, the, the last part of this uh, chapter. As the Buddha now returns to the resolution that began this sutra, the resolution to liberate all beings, he now examines beings in the same light as the teaching by means of which he liberates them, namely with, this, with his Buddha eye. Just as the teaching is no teaching, so too are beings no beings. If beings were beings, Bodhisattva would not avoid creating the perception of a being and becoming attached to beings. Also, I'm the one who is liberating you. right? So when there is you, there is I who, who is doing the liberation. Also, if Bodhisattvas were beings, they could not become Buddhas. It is because they are free of the perception of being that bodhisattvas become buddhas and liberate all beings. And it's important to, to understand that when we, you know, we keep chanting the four vows, we have to understand what we're chanting. And a couple of comments on that. Sheng Yi says, beings don't actually come into being, but... Are a combination of the five skandhas, form, sensation, perception, mental, formation, consciousness. We just give them the name beings, but the name is actually empty, because beings are empty. And again, it is safe to use names when we understand that what we are referring to is not that. When it is not, it is free to be is. All right. As we chant, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva doing deep prajna paramita clearly saw the emptiness of all five skandhas, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. So, when we see the emptiness, the empty nature, or we see that each skanda is empty of separate existence, then we are free to experience through those skandhas. We are free because we are not trapped by the, by what the mind creates from what is being perceived. It is, things are being perceived and mental constructs are being built. That's a given, but the point here is that we are not creating a self from what is being created or from the, what the mind creates. Does that make sense? Okay, so before we move on to chapter 22, any, uh, any words about that? Anything you want to share or any questions about that? Yeah, Sogen, good morning.
7: Good morning. Um, so, uh, I guess what this brings up for me is, you know, there seems to be whether they're talking about beings or dharmas or, um, you know, uh, the teaching of, uh, there seems to be a lot of going back and forth between what is something versus what is nothing. Mm-hmm. you know um uh, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of the avatamsaka sutra or the the it, it maybe it's a dependent origination idea as well which is exactly what you're saying i mean to the extent that something like a flower is non-flower is what makes it a flower. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's the, and basically that erodes its sort of a somethingness, right? I mean, because it's, because it's, it includes everything else. So the idea that it's, it's a separate thing of its own, you know, an idea of self or something, that's what, that's what, I keep coming back to it, at least with reading this. He keeps saying beings are no beings, dharmas are no dharmas. I mm-hmm. mean, to me at least, it brings up that idea that the dependent origination creates the the not self as part of you know the no thing that makes the thing, um, right? And and so. I mean, that's that's what comes up for me in reading it. And I, I, I mean, it's it sort of makes sense, but it's, it's difficult because, you know, you're playing with, with our conventional ways of, of, of looking at things mm-hmm. because, you know, yeah. it doesn't make sense, at least from a logical or Aristotelian point of view, to say, well, the flower is only a flower because it's non-flower, mm-hmm. right? Right. But but that's yeah. what it sort of brings
0: up. Well the non-flower elements uh, in the flower what it means or, or what is what is suggesting for us, us to look at is that it is free of the meaning we assign to it. Right? right? It is free and, and, and then we we are free to, to if, if we see that it is free, we are free to use that without getting trapped in it, right? But not only that, it is free of the meaning we assign to it, we are free of the meaning we assign to ourselves. Right. right. This has a very personal uh, message there. Right. It's not just about the way we look at reality. It's the way we look at ourselves. Right. right? And 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 it's very important that we recognize that while we have notions there about ourselves and about reality, those notions are just not fixed. Right. They are just notions, and they are not These really uh, yeah, yeah. But so. And, and and again the freedom to use names, the freedom to, to exchange words has everything to do with seeing that it is not. Then okay, let's talk about ease. Otherwise right. ease becomes uh the the many is ease, eases, right, become the bricks of our uh of our the walls that make our jail, basically, right? We're trapped in that. Right and it seems very, very firm. Yeah. Right, and, and so that's what this is This is addressing, yes. And you talk about interdependent origination, right? Yeah. Uh, pratitya Samutpada, yes. So, interdependent origination, because everything is everything, then there's no need to make anything out of anything, right? So when you right. point at the rose, another way to see that, when you look at the rose, there is nothing that you are not looking at. Right. There is nothing that you are not looking at. Past, present, future. Everything is contained therein. Everything is right there. Right. That's what makes it not fixed. You see, because it is everything, then yeah. it is free of the meaning we assign to it as separated from everything else.
7: Right. Right i mean it's it's i, I guess intellectually <laughs> i can approach it but but experientially it's it's uh, seems far away <laughs>
0: you yeah. or, know or, or maybe not so far away when we put aside that the intellectual understanding putting aside for a little while then yeah. all there is is the experience and if you are staying with the experience right and you work with that then there's only the experience. Then where is the question? Where is the doubt? Mm. Where is the doubt? Where do you find the doubt, if not in the mind as a question, which is a concept? But if you put that aside, even for a second, and you go directly to the experience, where is the question? Where is the doubt? Where is the issue?
2: Right.
0: At that second, It's irrelevant. The questions are irrelevant.
7: You're too close to the experience to to separate from it or
0: question it. Well, you remember, why is it so close to realize? Because it is so close. Why is so difficult, right? Because it is so close. Mm. Thank you. So, thank you. Okay. Yes. Segyoku, you said the last word on this chapter.
8: Um just in reference to what you and Sogan were talking about. So it seems to me that um when it feels far away in terms of understanding in a felt in an experiential way, it feels far away. And uh in a sense, in terms of our experience, it is far away. But uh, what it's feeling like to me is, um, at any moment it becomes real. And, um, we don't know when that will happen. So, um, if we just keep paying attention, and hearing that this exper- kind of experience is available, then at some point we experience it, but we don't know when that's going to happen. And before that happens, it doesn't feel real.
0: Something else feels real. What's that? Something else feels real.
8: Yeah, something else feels real.
0: Right. and. Although, and, and we, have, we have talked about it before, although we, we, we think, well, you know, this is illusion, the illusion becomes very real. Yes. And it's important to, to, to point to that, right? So we cannot say, well, this is just illusion, right? Because it is real, and not only that, it dictates the way we live. So it's very real. Even if it's not, it's very real.
8: And it's useful. It helps us to
0: be honest about
8: that yes yeah and to be good sense students who <laughs> say this isn't real when we experience it as real
0: yes so we're not dismissive you're saying yes very important right because if we're dismissive we may s- suppress something right that needs to be needs to move through us
8: we give it respect.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's also the Dharma. Mm-hmm. It's also teaching, right? Is it not teaching us? Mm-hmm. Often what is false is, is, is a far greater teacher than what we consider real. What we consider false can be a great guide. Mm-hmm. So yes, so let's not ignore any teacher. Thank you. So chapter 22, Subuti, what do you think? Did the Tathagata realize any such dharma? And this goes to actually, to the realization or to the time of realization or enlightenment. Did the Tathagata realize any such dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment? Anutala samyak Samyaksambodhi. The venerable Subuti replied, no indeed, Bhagavan, the Tathagata did not realize any such dharma. Bhagavan, as unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. The Buddha said, So it is, Subhuti, so it is. The slightest Dharma is neither obtained nor found therein. Thus it is called unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. So even enlightenment is is being seen in the same exact way as anything else. And... Obviously, it makes sense because if the Dharma Dal- see- or, or enlightenment is seen separated from the way the Dharma is treated, then there's going to be a problem there, right? So how can the teaching of no teaching be realized, right? Or how can the realization of the teaching of no teaching can be something fixed? And this is uh, Bill Porter's commentary. In the previous chapters, the Buddha ex- examined the nature of his reward and apparition bodies, which are the bodies obtained upon realizing and teaching the Dharma of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. He now turns to enlightenment itself, which is his real body. The Buddha has already told us that when he was an ascetic, the ascetic Sumedha, he did not obtain any such Dharma from Dipankara. It would be more accurate to say that at the meeting, uh, that meeting he lost all dharmas. So the practice of the, of the way consists daily losing, if you remember. For it was at that meeting that he gained an acceptance of the breathlessness of all dharmas. The Buddha now skips his intervening lifetimes and proceeds to Bodhgaya, where he reached the end of the Bodhisattva path and realized enlightenment. While others might proclaim the wonders of such a world-shaking experience, the Buddha denies that he obtained or found anything at all. And this, this, is, this could be an issue because this could shatter, could shatter our reasons for practice. And, in fact, it needs to shatter our reasons for practice so we don't harass ourselves and we can practice correctly because as long as we are practicing with the goal of arriving somewhere, we are practicing with the goal of arriving somewhere and that goal becomes a hindrance or becomes the veil that prevents us from experiencing. The teacher teaches no teaching because he learned nothing. And he learned nothing because the teaching contains no teaching. What the Buddha learned was like the jewel he himself placed in, a, in the ragged clothing of a poor traveler in the Nirvana Sutra. Enlightenment turns out to be something the Buddha was never without. And how could he obtain it? Right. So how could he obtain something that he... How do we obtain what we are? that's the question, then too the hand cannot grasp itself, nor can the mind know itself. Chao Ming titles this chapter as No Dharma to Realize. And I would like to turn the attention to the awakening of faith. There's an essay attributed to Asvagosha, and it says Original enlightenment is intrinsic but non-enlightenment is accidental. The latter is an unactualized state of the same original enlightenment. That is to say, a person is originally enlightened or saved, but suffers because she does not realize it and continues on blindly groping for salvation elsewhere. Maybe we should chant that every day. And then it continues that to the aspect of non-enlightenment. And this is what we have to look at. Rather than seek enlightenment, again and again, we have to look at the aspect of non-enlightenment. What, what substantiates that in our minds? So there, as Magosha says, Because of not truly realizing oneness with suchness, there emerges an unenlightened mind and, consequently, its thoughts. These thoughts do not have any validity to be substantiated. Therefore, they are not independent of the original enlightenment. It is like the case of a person who has lost his way. He is confused because of his wrong sense of direction. If he is freed from the notion of direction altogether, then there will be no such thing as going astray. It is the same with with people. Because of the notion of enlightenment, they are confused. But if they are freed from the fixed notion of enlightenment, then there will be no such thing as non-enlightenment. Because there are people of unenlightened, deluded mind, for them we speak of true enlightenment, knowing well that this relative term, knowing well, what this relative term stands for. Independent of the unenlightened mind, there are no independent marks of true enlightenment itself that can be discussed. So, also this uh, one example that was brought in that is somebody lost in the woods, going in the woods and lost. If this person has a sense of a destination, an idea of destination, the person is lost. But if the idea of a destination is gone, is the person lost? In other words, we are lost because we think we are lost. We are lost because we are rejecting this. Because how could this be it? And after how could this be it? There is a long list of reasons why this cannot be it. And those reasons have everything to do with what I don't like. Well, what if the I is unsubstantiated? Then what? What does that do to the list of complaints? Or the lists of reasons why I am, I don't like this. Not right now. Or for example, people say, I, I'm tired of this pandemic. That statement is actually showing us everything we need to know. Because that statement means, I I don't like it. I don't want it. As if somebody is asking, would you like to have this for the next year or so? Or how long would you like to have it still? Six months? Three months? Right? So so as if there is somebody there separated from that, that can shift things around, move this to that over there, and decides how reality will show up. It's a very self-centered statement. Do we understand that? So, one more thing before we open it up. Uh, this is why Lao Tzu says the Tao moves the other way. Or in other words, to go against the grain. Which does feel like going against ourselves. So, let's see where we're at with that. We are, pract- or, or how do we How do you find the notion of... The idea of practicing without the goal of enlightenment? Is it acceptable? Or or what does it really mean? What do you think it means? Okay, Daikyo, good morning. It's your turn.
9: Good morning. Um... Yeah, I was was listening to to these two chapters and and to the comments. People were ringing up and I think, you know, um, this reminded me a lot about uh, how, um, being is, you know, time is being and being is time, you know, and, and how, how do we read? wrong about you know the definition of ease. I think you know we get trapped by the concept of ease. You know, and something is has this concept in, in immediate concept that um, has a certain permanent condition to it. Mm-hmm. A certain you know kind of defined thing that goes through time. We don't understand that you know that there is not such a thing. And this is what this is saying, you know, all, all over and over again. It's saying um is, I mean the word ease is, is something to be careful about. We can call a rose a rose because we understand the rose is not a rose permanently. Because we understand that ease is, is not a permanent thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's is a rose at this very moment and expressing in that way. And it contains everything in that happened before. And contains its own future as a rose. I mean, it became a rose because of everything that was happening, and we will do something because it's a rose now, right now. But it's this temporal thing that is getting us confused. Um, when I was listening to this, and I think you know you brought that up into my understanding um, of how do we get trapped by that, and then and then how how the language sounds so obscure because it's saying is and it do, is not and. You know, and basically, what is what I understand is trying to say is that don't take ease as something that is permanent. And if you do that, then you can call whatever you want something at this very moment mm-hmm. if it's functional to call it. Because I mean, we 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 need to call things to operate to function. You know, we need to kind of say, okay, open the book, and we're talking about the book, not you know something else. You know, and um. And that is uh, that, That's how my interpretation of, of this chapter, and and how this enlightenment, and going to the question. I mean, I, I think that was a general statement, of what I was listening today in this morning. Um, but uh, going to your question about um, the enlightenment and how how do we practice something we don't want to achieve? In and and, uh, and that is uh, that is a great. Um, I mean, it has the, this such, such a great uh, comforting feel once you understand that it, there is nothing to really achieve on practicing something. And there is, there is this pleasure of doing something not for any other reason, um, which it, it's not, in practicality, it's not easy to do. We, we tend to put reasons onto everything we do, you know, um, because everything is attaching with some economics to it. Um, economics of time, economics of of money sometimes, but it's also economics of time. I mean, I'm doing this, or I'm doing this for the future. I'm doing this for... We, we do have some materialism embedded into everything we do. And, and, and to function, we need that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we need to realize that uh, it's not the reason why we should be doing things. Um, so to me... Um, the more um, the more I just practice uh, and the more I disconnect with any future uh, knowledge of, of things to achieve um, the more I enjoy everything I'm doing even the tough the, the things that I don't enjoy um, and it's a very weird thing because I mean even the things that I don't like about it it, it it they're not really as terrible as I think they are you know I make them terrible when I think about them Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm doing them, I'm doing it, you know, like I'm, you know, cleaning a mess or something like that, you know, like it's a, it's a perfect example of everyday things, you know, like uh, something got messy or really bad, you know, like in this, you can clean it with like, Ooh, or you can just clean it mm-hmm. and and that changes the way you kind of um, go to it. It's not like you're cleaning it to make it clean, you're just doing mm-hmm. Um, So in that sense, to me, um, I'm grateful. I mean, I think, you know, this is something that Enkai mentioned before, I mean, that kind of openness that brings the the fact that we don't have anything in particular to be doing, mm-hmm. or we don't have, um, so, so that, those are the, the things I wanted to raise today.
0: Right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. yeah, there is an ease, there is relief, there is, uh, at one right? There is not thinking that there is somewhere else I need to do or or somewhere else I need to be at or something else I need to be doing. Or that there is there is something else going on. Right? So it brings everything right back to this. So so the notion of enlightenment, it, it will be it will be not true to say that there is enlightenment in the way we think about enlightenment. It's not that there is no enlightenment, but if you remember from the koan, it's not that there's no love, but what can be done about the sec- falling into the secondary? Right? So what could be done about creating a gap is the question. Or, or not getting trapped in the gaps that we create or falling into the gaps we create. That, that's, what, that's the question. It, that really is the most important question. But uh, the, the notion of enlightenment, there is such a thing, but not in the way we think about. And definitely not as a goal. As long as as long as we make a goal out of that, we make something out of that. And when we make something out of that, it's no longer what it is. Because we think we know what it is. Or and maybe we think we know what it's not. Maybe that's better. Because we no, think I mean, we think it's not it, this.
9: It's the permanency of enlightenment that is kind of the wrong thinking about it. The fixedness. Um, it, it is. It's kind of. We think enlightenment as something that. Okay, you achieve that is permanent. You know, and and it, it, you know nothing is permanent. That's why. You know this is completely debasing the concept of ease all the time. You know, and it's like it's not. It's not. It's not because it's. It's not permanent and cannot be something. You know, um, and that and that is, enlightenment is the same thing. It's like okay, you can be enlightened, but. You know, it's not a permanent thing. You can be enlightened now, 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 and every second you could be connected or not, and and it's not a permanent thing. So you, there is nothing to achieve, really, because I mean, the the whole connection is there all the time. So you just need to see it, and you can see it and not see it in the next second. Um, right, right. But that doesn't mean it's not there, I mean, it's just that connection is... And so the only thing permanent, and that's the funny thing about this, the only thing that is permanent is nothing. You know, and and, and that's kind of what he's saying, is mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's connecting those things. So, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I saw it today when, when you guys were talking, and I, I need to kind of sit with it a little bit more, but, uh, but I think it opens up on, on that dimension
0: yeah let the dust settle so when we recognize that the means and the end are non-dual then then it's happening already right then we're not we're not bothered by the idea of later we're not bothered by the idea that later something will come and that thing will be much greater much better than this in in any way it doesn't matter what it is right it, it's realizing step by step that every step is it but this is why you know Suzuki said, you know, we just sit. If enlightenment comes, it comes. If it doesn't come, it doesn't come. We don't mind. We don't mind. And that's the way to actually experience enlightenment. To free ourselves from the notion of non-enlightenment. Which is which is it's very difficult for us to, to understand because of the way we try to understand it because we try to grasp it because we try to grasp it through the intellect and uh, yeah, it gets very muddied very quickly and we don't know what to do with it. Which means we can get discouraged very quickly too. So, yeah. Anything else about that? Anyone else? Yes, Sogan So, again. so when, I,
7: when I hear you talk about this and, and and um daikyo talk about this it it sounds like the idea is that that you know part of the problem with setting up enlightenment as a goal or as a thing is that you reduce it to a concept in your head mm-hmm. and then you want to know it like like you know like you know your car or you know a shoe mm-hmm. um and and it's not something that's capable of being reduced in that way to a thing that's a definite thing, that's knowable as an object of, of thought. And and so we have to let go of that idea of enlightenment as object. And, and, and that's why this, you know, I mean, at least that's what it, it brings up in terms of the discussion today. It's easier for me to grasp it that way than to think you know, that there is no enlightenment or there's, you know, I, I, it's, I find it more encouraging to think that what the Diamond Sutra is teaching and what you're saying is that it, it, it's not a thing.
0: Right. And you're correct. It's not a thing. You know, you talk about reducing it, right? What happens is we reduce ourselves. So if, if I, if I say I am deluded, I reduce myself to, to something. If I say I'm enlightened, I'm also reducing myself to something. Mm. B- both are; they come from the same place. We reduce ourselves to a thing, and that thing in our minds is either deluded or enlightened. It really doesn't matter because it becomes a title, it becomes uh, a word. That's all it is; it's just a word, right? right. So we reduce, and a concept, as you said, so we reduce ourselves to that particular concept, which some people value, some people may not. It doesn't matter, right? Still. Still, we are that. But we are not that. So before we can see, and then if we realize the the non-elements within that, then say whatever. Then we can, actually, then we are free to use the word enlightenment. Mm. Right? Because it's no longer a fixed thing.
7: Right.
0: Then we can, and that's why, that's what he's saying here, right? Uh, Asvagosha? that, you know, Because of not realizing it, we use such a term. Right? For those people, he said, we use the term enlightenment. We speak of that because there are people of unenlightened, deluded mind. For them, we speak of true enlightenment, knowing well that this relative term, knowing well what this relative term stands for. Right? It's provisional, it's for the time being, it is uh, nothing more than upaya, if you will. Right? And upaya is great. We're not saying we should not use upaya. Right? Upaya is yeah. always wonderful because it is, it's helping us. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank great. you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Any questions? Or...
9: Mioho no? wanted
0: to say something. Oh, Mioho. Okay. Yes.
10: Uh, uh thank you i'm sorry I'm, I'm a little sick today so that's why i don't have my camera um but i do want to say something um first thank you for all the sharings um i used i think i mentioned this before but i used to go to a group that did a bunch of different things in terms of the spiritual world um and i remember it they got so obsessed with enlightenment that. They were putting pressure like you needed to get enlightened before you die so I remember there was an older lady there um, and I'm talking about she was probably like 65 and they were pushing her because she was running out of time and I remember before I left that place one of the I guess wake up calls that I got was this the the leader of the group telling this lady what have you done you have done nothing with, you know, everything. And all I seen since I was in that place for 13 years, it was she putting effort, but through pressure. And I was just, you know, it really something moved inside of me. And I said, this is just not right. But it got to a point in my personal experience that I didn't want to be enlightened if it has to be this hard or so much pressure. Like some of you mentioned, like it becomes great knowing that I don't have to get there. I can just relax, you know, and do my best and enjoy it. Um, But then I also realized that enlightenment became a concept. Now that we're all talking about how Mm -hmm. it has to be understood by the mind for some reason, this necessity. So then I thought that enlightenment was like, you know, a like a nice cloud and lights and me feeling happy all the time and I don't have to do anything anymore, you know, and and everything was going to be given to me. And and I had this amazing idea of enlightenment that, you know, I think it's a lot of, a lot of religion practices have that misconception of heaven or nirvana, you know, like people want to get there just to, because it's so great. And our life seems to be so miserable that we, we need to escape. So it wasn't until I started joining the Zanga and started really understanding a little bit more of, well, <laughs> I remember Jumri said, enlightenment is, this is that you know? <laughs> you may have to still working and doing what you do if you're enlightened. Nothing is really going to change. And at that moment, it was like another, I guess, relief of, oh, is if if I'm going to have to be doing the same things, you know, that idea that I have was ripped off, you know, and it, it disappeared instantaneously. So I felt like it was really good to just realizing how the mind needs to understand it to create something out of it. Um, and that is a problem. Like there's nothing problem with being enlightened or not. The problem is what we can think of what enlightenment is in our mind and then pursue something that, you know we we again we go away from this is it <laughs> this mm-hmm. is enlightenment and and can, can do you do you can you be here mm-hmm. you know you want do you want to be here so I just wanted to share that experience with i guess the word and <laughs> what has been for me um for the past years thank you
0: thank you thank you for that, and uh thank you for not staying there. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's, it's, uh, we, we, we definitely make something of it and uh, when we create a a prize, right, uh, that we want to get out of practice, it's a shame because we do, we, we, we take medicine and we use it as poison as, as you hear many times. And that, that is a great example of taking medicine and using it as poison for, for, for many reasons. But uh, yeah, thank you for that. So, uh, Hoji, you wanted to speak.
3: Hi, everybody. <clears throat> thank you for thank you sharing this awesome practice with me. Just couple things. The first thing is, I'm not. I I I, I don't. I wouldn't know if I was enlightened or not. I don't know if I ever will. Um, and, uh, that's okay. Um, this chapter in the previous one, uh, had me remembering or thinking back to a time when I was younger and I was, um, um, I was an athlete and, uh, an all-American athlete and I played, um, Olympic development league. And there was, uh, I, I had these uh, just innate gifts and uh, had happened to have a, a really wonderful coach that um, knew intuitively uh, how to uh, support me in, in, in expressing my gifts um, fully. Uh, and one of the things uh that he would have me do would be i played point guard would be to to practice uh dribbling for an hour with both hands, but I would wear these glasses that would cut off my vision so i couldn't see the ball right um which basically was just you know forcing me to to dribble blind um but it it allowed me it allowed me a, a two things one um a, again a greater expression of that uh, innate gift um but it also allowed me a level of trust um that it that it was there and um you know and i never questioned it and um and i'll just sh- share this uh, one thing and then be quiet uh, we, there was one team that was better than us and, um, they had been, uh, you know, won the championship for years. And, uh, we, we happened to have two other all Americans on our team and, and for the first time ever had a good chance of beating this team. Um, and, you know, so we show up for this game, um, and nobody really expected us um, you know to win. Um, we practiced uh, all of us practiced to the best of our ability and listened to the coach and What wound up happening you know um, during that game, we won that game and we became um, ranked number one uh, in the state and third in the nation um, but the winning was secondary to, I know for me personally, uh, you know, I was just in the fullest expression of what they call the zone and the way that we won was really unexpected. It wasn't with the players that, um, that, uh, you know, every on paper, everyone expected, um, us to win with, um, it, you know, for whatever reason, um, I just kept feeding the ball to a player that was, you know, second string and she had the game of her life and um, and we won. Um, winning was never the goal. Um, and so I, I think, it, so I bring that now to my practice and, and because as we're reading and everyone's talking, I'm thinking, I don't really even question any of it. I just trust the process. I just mm-hmm. trust, you all, um, and our coach, uh, and, um, <laughs> and that's it, you know, maybe that's naive, but, um, and, uh, you know, and then again, it's like, I, I will, like, how am I going to know if I'm enlightened? It, it, and does it even matter? It doesn't really matter to me. Um, I hope that that made some sense. Um, But it it, uh, also, it's a gift to remember that I'm like um, that I have lived that, that expression, um, uh, you know, uncorrupted expression of uh, I've been in the zone. And so what a gift that is. And I just know, you know, whatever it was that found me on that basketball court with that wonderful teacher, um, I trust that. Um, and now I'm on this court with this teacher and all of you and um, I can just let go. I can just let go and show up, suit up, show up and um, and let go and have fun and be excited. Um, so thank you all.
0: Thank you. So, so, so the notion of knowing, right, or not knowing, uh, Buddhas don't know that they're Buddhas, as as you, I don't know if you've heard that before, but that's from Dogen. Buddhas do not know that they're Buddhas. And uh, also, as far as trust, to trust the Sangha, to trust the practice, yeah, we trust, yet we verify that trust through our own experiences, right? So the trust is not uh, closing the eyes and following as much as to trust that we are it and this is it although there are, at times every cell of our body is saying something else right and uh, we definitely don't feel it often and we definitely feel a lot of resistance even to that notion right so to trust and to turn the attention inwardly now now no enlightenment does not mean there is no kensho uh, and it does not negate uh, the, the experience of Kensho because there is there are all such experiences. And uh, yeah, wonderful experiences. But the point in that is, let's not make anything of it before and after. Let's not look for Kensho. And when Kensho happens, let's not make anything of it. Because Kensho is about nothing. So we are we are nothing before we are nothing after. Although before we think we are something, but uh, and that's what we're working with. But but Kensho all it is is just showing that we are not what we think we are, or it is showing us that what we think we are is just a concept. So that's one way to see that. But again, you know, we're not trying to 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 throw away the notion or the idea of. Um, Kensho or enlightenment, what we're working with is understanding it in a more true, real way. Okay, so we're not, uh, it's not about should we take it or throw it away. It's really about knowing what it truly means. So, so there are some uh, commentaries here that uh, are worth uh, reading. It's from Thich Nhat Hanh. Here we come to the notion of non-attainment. If we think that the Buddha has achieved an independently existing attainment, this attainment cannot be called the highest, most fulfilled awakened mind. The moment the concept of highest, most fulfilled awakened mind arises, the essence of highest, most fulfilled awakened mind vanishes. This is why the Buddha said, I have not attained anything. Important point. And uh, this is from Bill Porter. Subuti began this sutra by asking the Buddha how bodhisattvas should travel the path to Buddhahood. One by one, the Buddha has divested Subhuti and his fellow disciples of any delusions or attachment they might have had concerning such a path. In the previous chapter, the Buddha put an end to the perception that Buddhas teach anything. He now puts an end to the perception that Buddhas realize anything, and that makes sense. Of course, this begs the question asked by Bodhidharma. You talk about non realization, but how do you realize non realization? Thus, Lao Tzu said, those who seek learning gain every day, those who seek the way lose every day. They lose and they lose until they find nothing to do. Nothing to do means nothing not done. Nothing to do means nothing not done. Active every moment, she does nothing. Active all day, he does nothing. Or the doing takes care of itself, which is right effort. Uh, Chifo says, the marvelous Dharma of Vajna is actually something in your own home. Since you have never lost it, how can you find it? We can only lose possessions. We, cannot, we can lose what we have, what we hold on to. We cannot lose or find what we are. If you find something, you are not free of attachments and have not yet broken through the delusions of subject and object. Previously, The Buddha talked about obtaining the fruit of merit by sowing the seeds of charity. Here, he says, nothing is obtained. This refers to the nature of merit with which the fruit of merit cannot compare. Huynheng said, when the thought of realization is gone, this is enlightenment. In other words, when when realization is gone, realization shows up. That's for Bill Porter. When the Buddha realized the Dharma body of unexcelled perfect enlightenment, he not only did not find the greatest of dharmas, he did not find the slightest, most insignificant of dharmas. He did not find even an atom of reality. But what is devoid of even an atom of reality is reality itself, which is the Buddha's Buddha's Dharma body. The awareness of this is what the Buddha means by unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. And St. Chao said, the Buddha is a person, enlightenment is the way. Because the Buddha realized the way, he explained it to people. But if the Buddha says there is no Dharma to explain, did he realize the way? Enlightenment means the end of form and the omnipresence of emptiness. Since enlightenment has no form, what is there to realize? Complete extinction in which nothing is realized is the ultimate way. So, we're almost done. So let's, uh, if anybody wants to add something to that, ask a question, Let's, uh, let's finish with that. Yeah, maybe. How about Kyotai? We haven't heard from you.
11: Morning, everybody. Um, What that was making me think of you know, when realization disappears, it appears. um, because you you are that. You can't see it because you are that. Um, and it was really making me think about my own practice, particularly now during um, coronavirus, um, how we are kind of reliant upon ourselves to really um, own our, our practice and really embody it for that reason. We don't have uh, each other in the zendo and we don't have such genes, and we don't have all these normal things of our practice. Um, so how does it really come into your body and your being so that everywhere you are and everything that you're doing becomes that? Um, so I was just thinking about some of the, the ways in which I've been trying to do that in my own practice.
0: And how are you doing that in your own practice?
11: How am I doing it in my own practice?
0: Yeah, um,
11: I'm just trying to bring the mindfulness to everything that I'm doing. So um, in my Zazen, I'm really trying to fine tune everything that I'm doing in my Zazen. Um, I'm trying to be much more mindful about what I'm eating and how I'm eating. When, when there was something like jihatsu, I would uh, use jihatsu as a time to really make reverence and appreciation for the way that I'm eating and how I'm moving through that. Um, but we don't have, like, I don't have a specific time outline where I make reverence around eating. Um, so I really now try to bring that more into what I'm doing at home mm-hmm. or but before I feel like I was busy all the time. So I would grab something quick to eat and not really think that much about it and just eat it fast and um, be done with it. And now I really try to make an effort to, Sit down, think about where the food came from, how it got to me, all the various stages of growing through the earth and somebody bringing it to the grocery store and me bringing it home and preparing it and really taking the time to notice what's in my mouth before I swallow it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of little things like that to really just try to appreciate every bit of what I'm doing in the same way that I would in the Zendo mm-hmm. um, and not just rush through things that I typically would. Yeah.
0: That's great. So the practice of uh, attention and appreciation. And the practice of attention and appreciation is far greater than seeking enlightenment. Thank you. So Daibo wants to say a few words. Do you want to unmute?
12: Hi everyone.
0: Um, yeah, you know,
12: so when the quote that she said earlier you know when you follow the way you lose you lose you lose um really really strikes me as kind of the definition of of what we're talking about and you know maizumi roshi put it very simply he put it in an arithmetic in a very simple arithmetic He, he he says zero plus one right so in in the process of practice we we lose ourselves, as Dilgan says. Mm-hmm. And we we allow our experience of our environment to be the direct experience of that environment. So when I experience the rose, if if I come to that experience of the rose as the zero without any preconceived notions, you know, the process of merger with the rose is instantaneous because. I approach it from a sense of not knowing mm-hmm. what the rose is. I just experience that. I just experience it, and then from that place, I can provisionally manifest um, to do whatever is, you know, as we talk about authentic and appropriate at that time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very interesting to think of enlightenment as a process of losing you know, a process of becoming the zero. And then once you become the zero and you approach, you know, the phenomenal world as that empty, Mm -hmm. um, the phenomenal world is free to be what it is. And it allows us to be free to interact with the phenomenal world, um, you know, with ease, Mm -hmm. with freedom. So uh, I'm kind of trying to encapsulate what everyone has been talking about. And, um, that's really where, um, the quote that Jen said, you know, to follow the way is losing, losing, losing. And it kind of makes sense to me that way because there are no more concepts anymore to think about. It's just the direct experience. And then, um, the manifestation of that experience as a provisional Mm -hmm. um as a provisional arising as raison mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. um
0: thank you thank you daibo thank you so we'll feel yogan wants to say a few words and we'll finish with that
5: no just uh just a few thoughts that came up as people were speaking and um when i was reading um Just this story actually about um, a monk who was trying to help uh, an animal or an insect come out of its shell and to become enlightened and um, not realizing that that the animal would be destroyed if you pushed them to, to become something it wasn't. Mm
3: -hmm.
5: And, um, so the insect was destroyed, um, before it became something that it was naturally becoming anyway, or naturally was anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think that enlightenment, um, I shouldn't say, I think enlightenment is anything, but, um, I feel like there's just one word associated with it and that's action. Um, it is moving and not moving. It's breathing and not breathing. It's, um, picking something up and putting it down. Uh, It just feels like, um, a presence. Um, I think reality changes and there's no permanence in reality. But I feel like um, I feel like enlightenment is that um hum in every action that you take mm-hmm. and in every word that you speak um, I just wanted to share that thank you
0: thank you yeah that was Ha queen actually the story you you brought up about the um, yeah, so, so to intervene, right? To intervene thinking we know, but yet, you know, the, the question is how do we realize inherent completion? And it sounds like an oxymoron. How do we realize that which is already being realized or does not need to be realized? Here it is. Yet we need to realize it. So that's the path. All right, thank you. We'll finish with that and we'll pick up from here next time, next book study. Thank you.